0: Alright, um, we are doing a study on the Holy Spirit. I am uh, building, uh, I hope in some way that uh, y'all kind of step up with each of these things. Uh, I, I'm framing them around questions, and uh, uh, and the question that we're now going to enter into and not complete is, uh, how do we receive the Holy Spirit? Because I could ask you, you know, so do you have the Holy Spirit? And uh, the downloaded answer is, well, I was told I did. Uh, everyone talks about it like I'm supposed to, because I'm a Christian. So I guess, yeah, I do. And, um, um, and of course, that's somewhat of a, a, a mindless perception. I'm not sure that counts. Um, so how do you know? And... Um, I can frame this question in different ways. Uh, not only how do you receive the Spirit, how is it received, but can you can you be a Christian and not have the Spirit indwelling you? Um, if so, uh, does having the Spirit mean that you're you know more advanced as a Christian? It be a legitimate uh, thought. I do know there are those who do think of it in that term. Um, What conditions must be met to receive the Spirit? Um, You know, is there any, you know, context for this? So that's kind of where I'm going with this, and I hope uh, as we walk through this building block, as we get on to some deeper things later, that uh, uh, this will be helpful to you. Uh, These are all filters. It does matter, and uh, you'll hopefully begin to see the practical issues as we get on to some other things. Uh, what I'd like to do, and it's not working, Chris. Um, tell me when it's ready. All right. The meaning. I think it's very important, the first side. What does it mean that you are actually indwelt with the Spirit in the first place? I think when you figure that out, uh, it perhaps, uh, the answer to that question. How many have read the email I put out today? I just raised a basic question. All right, you know. Um, uh, I hope that this will take you there um, let's look at a couple texts uh, Romans chapter 8 Paul talks a good bit about the actual indwelling of the spirit uh, and uh, uh, he keeps saying the spirit in you in you in you in you he says it uh, multiple occasions in that text and uh, the uh, he says you are, are controlled not by the sinful nature but by the spirit if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, notice, he does not belong to Christ. Alright, think of implications of that. If a person does not have the Spirit, he is not an inferior Christian, and if you have the Spirit, you are an advanced Christian. No, it just says you're not a Christian. Hmm. If you have the Spirit... uh, you're not superior. No, it simply means that you are Christian. Simple enough? You all know about parallelism. Uh, if you teach English, even remember from high school, they talk about parallelism. Two statements that are put uh, side by side, one defining the other. Well, you'll find a good bit of that in the Psalms. Now, remember Psalm 51. There's a context of Psalm 51. Everybody remember what it was. King David, you're right. Who said that? All right. What was going on in King David's life in context? In other words, what prompted him to write this song? Yeah, yeah. He had, uh, this is uh, that moment with Bathsheba. It's in the aftermath of all of this. Um, He's caught, you know, uh, red-handed, trying to hide it from God, hide it from God's people. Uh, Life is uh, in a downspin. And um, uh, he's, you know, committed adultery, a child out of wedlock, he's murdered the husband. You know, it's just, it's just a really, it's a pretty, pretty uh, deep uh, pit he, he dug for himself. And in the, in the context of this, he writes the psalm in the aftermath. Um, and, of course, there's a lot of beauty that comes out of this psalm, uh, his understanding of forgiveness. Uh, but he also understands some other things. And you'll note what he says, and there's a reason that therefore he says it. That is this, do not cast me from your presence. Or, paralleled, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, if you pay attention to that in the in context, he's telling you what the the actual indwelling and presence of the Spirit in your life means to you. Uh, if you remember back in 1 Samuel uh uh, when God had identified David as being the new future king. And Samuel was the prophet. And um, David shows up, or he goes to David, and he says he anoints him with oil, and it said the Spirit came upon David. Uh, there is the reception moment. And David knew about the Spirit's uh, uh, uh empowering of his life and presence in his life. And so in the aftermath, now he's wondering, well, God, are you now going to withdraw yourself from me? And there was his concern. So what are we learning from this? Very simply, that um, the indwelling spirit means something. Uh, It means that we have fellowship with God, that God has fellowship with us through his spirit. That's what the actual presence of the spirit means in your life. It's a relational issue course is I just simply raised the question if the Holy Spirit is God then how do you answer the question how do we receive the Holy Spirit it's the same question as how do you receive God is it not well it should be you should find some parallels with that Um, so now let me take you to this and this is one of those little filters that uh, makes sense if we get more into this uh, context of this but let me uh, play this out for you this is a little uh, taste of theology and yes it does have some practical implications later on so pay attention Um, this is something that I encountered a great deal of in my college years. There was a time that this is the way I saw it, and if I were to teach it, this is what I would have taught. Um, uh, but I, I, some things kind of intervened on that, and I said, well, I don't don't think I agree with this anymore. That is this, that conversion or, or, or your Christian life basically comes in two stages, you have your initial moment of conversion, but you're not complete yet as a Christian. You're considered incomplete. Uh, that is, you receive a partial filling of the Spirit. The Spirit comes in fragmentations. Um, and later on, you kind of uh, get to this upgrade. We'll get to this in a minute. You go through kind of an upgrade, a supplement. That is, what, And it's actually uh, termed the second work of grace. Um, which is a bit interesting, the second work of grace, when you get to this up here, uh, but that you receive the Spirit later on in some, The uh, reason I put a question mark, because the time frame is unknown. It's different between person to person, depending on your experiences, that later on you receive the second work of grace, where the Spirit of God comes in fullness to your life. So now, if I hold on to this as a framework of how things work from God, then I'm going to be, obviously, pursuing this. And how uh, you, you uh, pursue this is you do certain things. You yield your life more fully. You surrender your life. You go through a purifying. You perfect your life. You get your life in a state where the Spirit can come in its fullness. So just kind of let that settle with you just for a second. And start thinking what are the implications of this. By the way, this is a very common framework, although you may not hear it articulated this way, this is what's being suggested to you. In fact, I would say this is probably the most common held view in Christendom in America today. Now, let's go to some text. And um, I think we'll find that, you know, that God does help us frame this. I don't want to finish this class. I want you to just give you enough to start weighing some of this, and then we'll finish this up next week. Um, Galatians chapter 3. Now, before we actually read the text, you all start looking at the text. Uh, tell me what Galatians is about. Because there's a context to this. It's always important to understand the context. Don't just plop in the middle of something and start reading it. If you don't know context, then you could run a thousand different ways with this and miss the, the actual fundamental point. Why did Paul write the letter of Galatians? There's really one fundamental issue. Yes, yeah, that's part of it. It's over one issue. What is the one issue that keeps coming up that Paul keeps talking about in Galatians? And it was a Jewish thing that was being bound upon Gentiles. Circumcision. Alright, now. Galatians uh, uh let's see, you got the Mediterranean Sea, you got Palestine and up north region, up there is Galatia. Right? One of the first places Paul went when he did his first missionary trip and started sharing the gospel and a bunch of people up there were Gentiles, became Christians. Word got down to Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians, said, hey, there's these Gentile Christians up there and so some of them were sent up there and traveled up there to go check them out. As though it was their job to check them out and be the gatekeepers to decide whether or not they could be really Christians or not. Read Acts. It comes out of this. In fact, Acts 15, the big powwow they had when all the leaders of the church came together and ironed this out and it was almost duked out. Uh, it was over this issue. Um, so this was a big to-do. To do. So these Jewish Christians come up there and said, "Oh, are you Christians?" They said, "Yes, we're Christians." They said, "That's wonderful." So have you been circumcised? Talking to, of course, the nails, and they said, "Circumcision." Um, well, no. Ooh, well that's a problem. You're not really a Christian then. What you Paul didn't finish up the message. He didn't give you everything you needed. So what you need to do now is, you guys, I mean, sorry to say, but if you really want to be a Christian, you want to have be a completed Jew. Because that's where it came from. We're the origin of this thing. God gave the law. The law was not meant to be put aside. So here, you guys just line up and let's go. And we're going to make you real Christians by being circumcised. Of course, Paul gets wind of this. And man, uh, if you read this letter, he starts off saying, if anyone, I mean anyone preaches to you a gospel other than the one you've already received from me, let that person be condemned. Let them go out if they say something different than what I've already told you. Big issue. This is not some peripheral issue. It's not Jesus plus circumcision. It's just Jesus. And Paul went to Jerusalem ready to fight this one out. Acts 15. Of course, they were all listening to the Spirit of God. Which is the language used in Acts fifteen? They all came to peace on this one, and they didn't bind this on, on those on those Gentile Christians. So the church listened to God. So let's remember the bottom line was they were really sensitive to God and they did what they were supposed to do. But it was a really difficult issue for these gen, Jewish Christians to see these Gentiles on equal footing when they weren't following their law. So there's the context of this letter. Now, it'll make more sense then when you read. How Paul comes at them to remind these now confused, baffled, disoriented Gentile Christians up there who have been having these influence from these Jewish Christians who have been telling them that they weren't really Christians, how to work through this. And notice he does it theologically. That is, he has them them think, how does God teach you? How did it work out? And he's going to ask the question, How did you receive the Spirit? He actually asks the question. So it's a very direct text. Okay? You foolish Galatians. You see, some of them had bought into this. And Paul's really getting on to them. They should have known better. Who has bewitched you? It's as though someone cast a spell on you and you just forgot everything that I told you, and you just jumped on the bandwagon, and a bunch of you have already been, uh, been circumcised, thinking that somehow that earns you a relationship with God through the law. What's happened to you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Those crucifixions of Jesus and grace go together. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Now, notice his argument. Okay, I just want to make sure I didn't break this text down. Did you receive? Now notice I got a little phrase in there. Where I, I define the grammar of this. The word "receive." What is it? What, is, what, what tense is it in? It's aorist tense. Now I, I'm, I'm not trying to get too technical. I'm not trying to lose you guys. But I just want you to understand that Paul's saying something very specifically. And if you want to study this text, you got to know this stuff. Aorist tense is something that took place at a specific point in time in the past. Did you receive the Spirit in the past, and they were therefore, or it's assumed that Paul says, you know what I'm talking about. When you see the Spirit, I said, yes, Okay, remember receiving the Spirit at, back back in our past. The Spirit by observing the law, or by believing what you heard. One question, and there's only two options. Do you see that? How did you receive the Spirit? you got one, two ways. You can work for it, or you receive it as a grace. So which one are you going to choose? Now, now, when you see the grace issue, you see how that affects this up here? You're doing it by your own actions, or you're doing it by grace. You can't have both. Same framed idea. Um, today, um, and, and what I was referring to, what I um, struggled with, is that the Holy Spirit comes to different people in different ways, different times, under certain condi- different conditions. And it's kind of a just, you know, yeah, we all get the Spirit of God, but, you know, every person is comparing an apple with an orange there. You just can't put them together and say there's some consistency uh, in terms of how God approaches people when it comes to receiving the Spirit. But Paul seems to frame this in very simple terms. How did you receive the Spirit? Works of law, you work your way, you earn it, you just get in a position where God says, okay, this guy's life is so ready now, I'll just give it to him like, like he's, not, now that he's got his life where it ought to be. Because that's a certain theology there, we'll get to that in just a minute, what that assumes, that you get your life together before the Spirit comes. As though you could get your life together without the power of God. Hmm. If the Spirit of God is indeed doing this, we'll talk about that later. Um, I want you to say that Paul holds no such idea. Paul's question, did you receive the Holy Spirit by heroic deeds, yielding, surrender, purifying your life, or by another means? And he says, down here, by believing what you heard. We'll get to that in just a moment. Um, Then he goes on to say this. Notice, after what? Beginning with the Spirit. So where does Paul place the reception process? The beginning of what? beginning of faith, the beginning of keep, keep translating, huh When yeah when you became when you believed what you heard, some texts I have a hearing of faith. Um, you hear the message of Jesus, you believe it and you receive the Holy Spirit. So you know in quote did you receive the Holy Spirit by doing all the law or did you simply listen to the message of Jesus? And it was as it was proclaimed and believe it, and you get the Spirit. When does the Holy Spirit come? At the beginning of the Christian life, not somewhere undefined and unknown portion later on, a second work of grace, but in the beginning. It seems very simple, and y'all, Paul also assumed that these people got this. They knew this. In other words, he's asking rhetorical questions, and they're answering it. The Holy Spirit doesn't come after yielding and praying and proving yourself. It's not now that I'm a Christian, I'm going to seek the Holy Spirit now in its fullness. The Holy Spirit really does help us, it seems to me, that I need him in the beginning, when my life's a mess, not after I've somehow worked it out on my own and made myself a a, a better receptor for it. Understand? The practicality of this, if you accept the theology that you get your life together, then you receive the Holy Spirit, you're saying that you do this on your own power. Can you live the moral, ethical demands of living like Jesus in this world unless God is empowering you to do it? If you can, then you don't need God and you don't need the Holy Spirit. Nor do you need Jesus dying on the cross for you. Just do it. But if I need God, if I need His empowerment, His help in my weakness, that I don't need Him after I've worked and surrendered and done all these things I'm supposedly supposed to do. I need Him in the beginning because I can't get there without Him. I can do nothing apart from Him. Jesus felt that way. We should feel that way. Um... Then he goes on to say, have you suffered so much for nothing? Is it If it really was for nothing, does God give? And here it's is That is, he is presently given and is continuously given. In other words, God gave you the spirit, aorist tense. Now he's saying, does God continue to offer a spirit to you? Does it continue to reside? Does God continue to stay in relationship with your life personally? Does he give you a spirit and work miracles among you because you observed the law or because you believed What you heard. Again, grace, grace, grace is constantly the argument of Paul. And understand what he's arguing about. He's talking about the circumcision issue with those Christians up in Galatia. You understand the context, and this makes sense. So, I answer the question so far, how do we receive the Spirit? Number one, very simply, by faith. And very specifically, again, number two, in the beginning. When Jesus and I connected. Okay. Now. Let's build on that. John 7. Very interesting text. I love the Gospel of John. Um, On the last and greatest day of the feast. I need to give you a framework for this as well. It's worth knowing. Um. First of all, do you know what feast he's talking about? It is Feast of Tabernacles. Now, um, there were three major feast days in the Jewish year. Big celebrations like our Christmas and Easter. It was the feast of Pentecost, Feast of Tabernacles, and the Feast of Passover. Okay? On those major feast days, every male I think was fifteen or over, if you lived within a certain uh, you know, within 15 or so miles, you're expected to be in Jerusalem engaging this moment. And it was, you know, I mean, who wouldn't want to, you know, take time off of work and and uh, feast for a week? Um, so it was a, you know, it's a big deal. Um, it's like someone invited you to the Super Bowl. Come on, come to the Super Bowl and everyone wants to go. Uh, but, and that's why people from all over the Mediterranean world, even those who live very far away, would, would take long, long pilgrimages. Uh, sometimes, you know, months at a time just to arrive in Jerusalem so they can at least once in their life experience these moments in the presence of God. Because where did he dwell? In the temple. And that's where it was, and that's where they wanted to be. So the closer you got to the temple, the closer you were to God. Well, that's for free, um, at least in their minds. The, um, now, Feast of Tabernacles was rather interesting. Uh, every day for the seven days of the feast, you notice know, it's the last day of the feast. This was the seventh day. They carried on a water ceremony. So the priest on duty that day would take one of the golden holy uh, um, um, vessels, a pitcher, and he would walk down to um, the, uh, down the hill outside the water gate, which you'll see why it's called the water gate in just a minute. And there was a uh, uh, the pool of Siloam. And he would fill it up. Now, all the people were, were following in a parade. And they carried uh, um, two different kind of branches in their hands. One was a citrus branch and one was a uh, lullaby. I can't remember what kind of branch it was. But just the old you know, oak tree and a maple tree branch, right? And they're walking down and they are singing songs as they're waving the branches. And they're singing the Hillel songs. Uh, Psalm 113, 118, you can read them later. They would sing these songs. Uh, they would also uh, be citing certain texts. Uh, like Isaiah 12:3, which speaks about how God will draw water from the well of salvation. And he's talking about Isaiah 44, verse 3, where it talks about He will pour uh, uh, water on the thirsty land, and streams will, will go out onto the dry land, and I will pour out My Spirit upon all mankind. You see that he associates water with the Spirit of God using the imagery that they experienced in the desert. Okay? And this is very interesting in their mind. It's their history. They understand this stuff. Uh, and they understand when they're singing these uh, verses and reciting these verses in celebration of this moment. Um, now, what did God do in the desert when it came to water? They got thirsty, so God supplied water from a rock. Okay? And, of course, that's the Moses figure. Remember, Moses predicted a prophet would come greater than him. And Jesus is associating him here, himself, with this moment. I'm that guy, by the way. He's being very direct about it. And, by the way, at the end of this chapter, they want to stone him. Well, there's a reason. Because he's claiming some things that, you know, he's not allowed to claim. He's claiming to be God. And they don't like this. Uh, so, rather than hiding back, this is really what you've got to get out of this chapter in John 17. Jesus is almost antagonistic about this. I will not go and hide about this issue. You want me just to go with the flow, just acknowledge myself as a typical rabbi like the rest of you guys, be an underling under you, great superior guys. But I'm telling you, I am this God, the one promised from the Old Testament, the one who's come. I am the Messiah. I am the anointed. And I've come to offer you the Spirit of God. And they understood this by these ceremonies. Well, this is the last and greatest day of the Feast. And uh, they've just, they're somewhere in this parading process, Jesus stops it. Now, in that context, notice what he says. Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, a lot of people, if anyone is thirsty, what is thirst? Here are these people who are thinking about being in the desert, the, our ancestors parched. But they understood it was more than simply the tangible water that God brought from the desert. And not only thanking God for the rains that they currently receive, because they were an agricultural society and how they needed God to send the rains so they could sustain life, which is part of what this Feast of Tabernacles was about. But they understood it also metaphorically, spiritually. Notice, whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures has said, no, it's not trickles, overwhelming flood of waters will flow from within him. Now, if you know the Gospel of John, uh, John will often say, you know, we didn't really get it when Jesus said it that, at that moment, but now that I've thought about it and the Spirit of God has illuminated this in my life, let me tell you what it means. And he gives these parentheticals and he does it throughout the Gospel of John. He goes, here's one of those moments. Let me tell you what he meant. By this, he meant... The Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Most hadn't been given yet. Up to that time, the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So, John's been very careful, so you can see the connection between Jesus and the receiving of the Spirit. You disconnect those, you got bad theology. Now, beautiful context. Um, But the simple question, again, trying to answer the question, how do you receive the Spirit? Well, thirdly, faith, not just faith, but faith in Jesus. Oh, you say, "I, I already knew that. That's assumed. No, it's not assumed. It wasn't assumed to that audience. That's what got him in such trouble when he said it. It's not what people necessarily believe today not what I was taught uh, for a portion when I was circulating around certain uh, groups and trying to learn and figure this out, and I wanted a spirit and wanted to make sure I had all of it and wasn't sure if I did or not, and, uh, you know, I went through this process and basically I was told to uh, have faith in the spirit. In fact, I was actually articulated that on more than one occasion very directly, not by assumption, but by you need to put your faith in the spirit. I said, okay. okay. So now I've got my faith in Jesus, and i got my faith in the Spirit. And it kind of, he said, well, it's the same thing because they're both God. Uh, all I know is, the text is very clear. Jesus says, faith in me. Now, let's go back to our basic key phrase. The Spirit's work is what? Centered in me. Jesus Christ. Say it with me again, out loud. The Spirit's work is centered in Jesus Christ. The Spirit does not come to point to Himself. The Spirit's active when you see Him pointing away from Himself to Jesus. When you see Jesus being highlighted, Jesus being glorified, Jesus being the center of attention, you know the Spirit of God has been active. Again, I keep telling you, if you'll pay attention to that vessel I created and fill it up with things I'm giving you here, it will actually have a practical implication of how you, you know, filter through all the myriad of things you're being told, or encounter. I just watch television. I run into this, and I struggle with it. Hmm. Man, I don't want to miss this. I, don't, I mean, I don't, I don't want to miss any of God. I want all of it. right? <clears throat> so, so what is the condition? By faith in the beginning Paul says and that faith is in Jesus one more text and we'll, we'll, we'll pick up next week well for those of you from Restoration Roots and Church of Christ this is a familiar text it's funny though how I heard this text I could quote it without even really caring to when I got out of high school and I always missed issue. We never talked about this aspect of it. Um, and we're going to go back. By the way, I'm going to take you through the book of Acts very particularly. It's, it's really fascinating to look at because the Spirit's activity there is very demonstrative and and uh, you learn a great deal. And um, it's also where there's a lot of confusion, at least where I got confused. And um, I would say, yeah, there's a lot of confusion beyond just myself, but I certainly own part of it. Um, remember this is the first time the message of Jesus was ever articulated it's uh, fifty days after the death burial resurrection of Jesus Jesus went through forty days of resurrection appearances these guys I mean they knew i mean this Jesus was you know a physical body but he kind of beamed in beamed out they knew something different about him you know he didn't have the same limitations uh um, you know, resurrection. It wasn't he wasn't a disembodied spirit ghosting in and out. He was a tandem. He ate with them, he talked with them, they gotta to touch him, they, uh, they they experienced him with all their senses. This is Jesus, although they had trouble recognizing him sometimes, but I always find that interesting, like the road to the maze. but that's that's we don't have time. Um, Jesus preached, um, you have the outpouring of the spirit, this promise that has been made for Centuries—all of a sudden, happened. They preached the message of Jesus. The people says are cut to the heart. You know, we don't even really sit and think of where are they. Well, we'll do this later on. But um, and these guys were just—I mean, I can't quite. You know, I remember getting caught doing some really bad things by my parents. One time, I almost fainted. It scared my dad that I fell against the wall when he caught me drinking one time. And, um, I mean, I'm talking just, well, that's what these guys were. They were just like, I mean, just, and Peter responds with this. So, you know, we hear these words. We just, you know, seem to just a little slice of theology. Here's a point one, point two. We missed the whole point of this. Uh, It bothers me that we missed the point. Of these moments, but if you take the time to understand the context, it means so much more. Peter replied, by the way, under underline uh, in, in between the lines, there's hope, guys. Don't panic. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And here's the part, you know, the forgotten God part. I could quote it, if I had absolutely no idea what it meant growing up. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you were a Jew, you understood, didn't you? Because they've been promising this all throughout Old Testament prophecies. Good theology. And the promise is for you, you Jews, right here now, and your children, your ancestors, just trace them on to the future. And to all who are far off, even to these Gentiles, although I'm not sure Peter quite grasped that one yet. In other words, it was, he's coming out of prophecies, and they keep saying, you know, like the Gentile. Gentiles get it too, but they're always thinking they're going to be kind of stepchildren to us Jews. You've got superior Christian Jews, and you got these guys that, well, let them come on in and kind of live on the, uh, you know, out in the outhouse and claim to be Christian. You with me? Our Messiah. Um, to all who are far off, No, even they get the Spirit of God. Boy, you put that together if uh, you get the Spirit? What do you get? Okay. We're, for all whom the Lord God will call. Now. Okay. Well, let me just do this. I would say that if you just look at just this text, it's building on the issue, and we're going to come back to this. My faith in the beginning... That focus of faith is in the person of Jesus. I'm not sitting with my attention and my energy put on the Spirit of God and getting them and trying to coerce him into getting into my life. No, that energy is put toward Jesus. And then I thirst for him, that relationship with God, that intimacy, that yearning that's deep inside that God put in there that I tend to ignore while well, I'm pursuing all the other trivial pursuits of my life, the inferiorities of my life. And God, but if you put your faith in Jesus and you you, you you try, you let him quench your thirst, you believe in him, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is a very uh, dynamic promise. So I would say through or in the context of clearly here, baptism." Now, I got more to say about this. And this is not the only place that Paul and other people talk about this. In this case, it was Peter. Really, it's Luke writing about what Peter said. Um, so before we end, let me let me get you to just go and read something. Colossians chapter two. I'm going to start there. It's in my notes. But I think it'd be good if I started there. I might put it into a slide. It's not in a slide right now. Colossians two. Um, but I'm going to ask you, what's the context of Colossians? Because until you understand the context of Colossians, just like you understand the context, what was going on. In other words, why did Paul write this church in Colossians? What was going on there that made it so necessary? Paul didn't just like to say, you know something, I just love those people over in Colossians so much, I'll just write them a letter and just make up a bunch of things, whether it's going on over there or not. Obviously, there were things that were they call the occasion. There were things happening there, and Paul gets wind of them. And he goes, man, I need to, you know, I'm the apostle. I'm the one who's responsible for the faith of these people and how they develop and what they believe and how they act and live. And uh, they need to be tweaked a little bit because they've they've kind of marched into something like these Galatians do that is warping their Christian lives. And it started with how they believed. And so he writes this letter. It has a lot to do with Jesus again, as you'd expect. They got Jesus wrong. If you get Jesus wrong, you get yourself wrong. So Colossians two, and he's going to speak about receiving God in fullness. Uh, the Greek word pleroma. And um, now think of fullness. When you run into that text in Colossians two, you'll get, or more than one get, the fullness of God. And when do you receive fullness in God? There's the question that he's going to raise there, because they're thinking they got it in stages. You get a little bit with Jesus, and you get a little bit when you add all these other addendums to it. What the scholars call the Colossian heresy, because it was such a unique gathering of different beliefs that they couldn't—they had to just—they just labeled it Colossian heresy. And I want you to read the chapter, and notice the question he's answering. What happens when you get Jesus? And that word fullness is planted right in the middle of it. So what is he telling you? Yes. Are you saying the Spirit prompting his interest, you mean? Yeah, if we don't receive it. It's a debated issue. Is he at work, even in those people's lives, for them to look towards Christ? Good question. And I'll tell you, scholarship's going to take you over here and over here with that one. I've got me what I think. Um, The Spirit's work is centered in, okay, and if Jesus is being the emphasized, glorified, pursued person, then I assume what? That the Spirit is active. Of course, you know, the, well, you know, if you believe this, uh, then, you know, what, how do you, you know, that, that means the people just, you know, how, how do you resist the spirit? Not well, just that. Um, God comes by invitation, not coercion. Have we not all learned this in our own lives? If God worked by coercion, everyone on the face of the earth would be a believer, and they would be perfect. You know, do this or die. Do this or pay I'll punish you right now. Okay, I'll do it. I mean God, God, most powerful being. The creator, he can do anything he wants. He has the power to force any issue he wishes, but he chooses not to. Thus the whole story of Jesus, which seems rather indirect way to get our attention. There are more direct more demonstrative demonstrative ways to overwhelm us, but God chooses not to overwhelm us. He invites. Even the miracles, look at the miracles. This is all for Fred. not you know, we're out of the class here, but um, um, all the miracles, knows uh, how subtle and, and non demonstrative they are. Sometimes Jesus would perform miracles and I don't want anyone to know about this, so I'll let you, Peter, Peter James, you guys can come, but, and just sh- don't say another thing about it. Um, always playing it down, always uh, being very unassuming about the whole process when the power of God is being uh, exerted. Um, the cross of Christ is an appeal. It's a, boy, I love you, and please come. And it's a very powerful one. But there's nothing coercive about it. Well, God, the Spirit, is no different. That is, his. he's gentle. He's patient. He's kind. He is what he produces. The fruit of the Spirit. Um, and um, so, do I think the Spirit is... Creating, um, orchestrating, drawing? Yes. Absolutely. And of course the question, well, how? Is it simply because of the message? You know, he, he inspires the message. Someone gets up and preaches Jesus. So that's the spirit. Well, I say that, that is the spirit call. That, that That's the spirit talking. If it's an accurate message of Jesus, that's the spirit talking. But is there, you know, does he orchestrate other things? Does he operate? We talk about, um, uh, the providence of God, God somehow involved in mysterious ways in our world and creating circumstances in our own life and lives of others, helping missionaries reach people. Uh, yeah, I think it's the spirit of God. So, um, we'll, we'll, we're going to get more into that stuff later. But good question and a debated one. Well, anyway, let's end there. We'll pick up, uh, read Colossians 2, pay attention to us. We're going to pick up next week and uh, uh, it's it's a really... It's a profound lesson that you're going to learn when you understand what Paul is saying to the Colossians in the context of it. Let's pray.